0: You're listening to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. This February, Granta launched its 118th issue called Exit Strategies. It asks, you've said it, you've done it, you've clung to it, you've kicked it away, what now? In this issue, John Barth's essay The End contemplates muse-inviting rituals and the end of writing fiction. On February 7th at an event at Books and Books in Miami, The celebrated author joined art critic and writer Chauncey Mabe to discuss discovering William Faulkner, the beginning of Barth's career, the height of his success as a pioneering American postmodernist, and what happens when the muse doesn't come to visit. As part of the pleasure of live recording, we hope you enjoy the unexpected contributions from our youngest audience member.
1: Before I read this terminal-sounding little essay, called The End, uh, which will require all of six or seven minutes to read. I want to call your attention, as Chauncey's already done, to the question mark after the title, it's the end with a question mark, and to the fact that, in fact, when it appears in my uh, next collection of essays called Final Fridays, which will be out in a couple of months, uh, it has a subtitle, which granted didn't have room to put in, called On Writing No Further Fiction, Probably. So, in short, I'm leaving the door ajar, I'm not closing in the door. Um, the, uh, this is the essay, which if essays could be dedicated the way books can be dedicated, I'd be dedicating this essay, essay to my wife, my critic of first resort, uh, my sine qua non, Shelley, who had other commitments tonight and wasn't here to, to, before they would be here for the reading. So here's a little essay called The End on Writing No Further Fiction Probably. In 2011 and 2012, two new products of this pen, a novel entitled Every Third Thought, which as Chauncey said is out already, and an essay collection entitled Final Fridays are scheduled for publication. Both were completed in 2009, my 80th year of life, and 53rd as a publishing writer. At the time of their completion, I didn't think of them as my last books, only as the latest. But in the time since, although I've still gone to my workroom every weekday morning for decades, uh, for the hours between breakfast and lunch that I've done for decades, and have faithfully reenacted my musing writing ritual, I find that I've written nothing. That room is divided into three distinct areas. Composition, one side of a large work table reserved for longhand first drafts of fiction on Mondays through Thursdays and nonfiction on Fridays, with supply drawers and adjacent reference bookshelves production, computer hutch with desktop word processor and printer for subsequent drafts and revisions, and business other side of work table with desk calendar and office files. As for the ritual, <clears throat> step one is to seat myself at the composition table, set down my th- refilled thermal mug of breakfast coffee, and insert the waxier plugs, that I got in the habit of using back in the 1950s when my three children, who are now in their 50s, were rambunctious toddlers and became so associated with my sentence making that even as a long time empty nester in a quiet house, I continued to feel the need for them. I can't imagine the muse beginning to speak until I've shut out uh, any other... uh, As for the ritual, uh, okay, done that. Incite the three. uh, uh, Insert the the wax earplugs. Step two is to open the stained and battered three-ring loose-leaf binder, now sixty-three years old and held precariously together with strapping tape that I bought during my freshman orientation week at Johns Hopkins University in 1947, and in which I penned all my undergraduate and grad school class notes, professorial lecture drafts during my decades in academia, and first drafts in the entire corpus of my fiction and nonfiction. I wish I could have brought it with you to show you this, but I'm afraid it will fall apart in transit, so I leave it on my work desk. But that business of opening that particular notebook which the the corners are all worn off from my thumb turning it ever since my freshman year at Hopkins in the 47. Step three is to unclip from that binder's middle ring the British Parker 51 fountain pen bought during my maiden tour of Europe in 1963-64 in a Volkswagen camper with those three then small children and their mother and a Rochester stationers alleged to be the original of Mr. Pumblechook's premises in Dickens' Great Expectations, the pen with which I have penned every subsequent sentence, including this one, and which I still use every morning uh, to pen my my, uh, prose. His predecessor and also much valued Schaefer that had seen me through college and my first three published novels had been inadvertently cracked in my shirt pocket a few weeks earlier when I leaned against a battlement in, in Hamlet's castle in Elsinore uh, Danish Helsingor near Copenhagen, the north, northernmost stop of that makeshift grand tour in order to get a better view of Sweden across the water. I leaned across the battlement, heard a crack, saw a black burb on my jacket, and there went the Schaefer that had seen me through my first three novels. So uh, the Parker came afterwards. My Brit uh, Parker was even on the cover of one of my books. I value it, says so much. Which in happier days, step four, meant reviewing and editing you the printouts of yesterday's first draft pages left off when the going was good, which Hemingway used to do, which so many novelists in particular do, and thus more readily resume the next day. Or work notes towards some project ingestation be followed by step five, re-inspiration and the composition of new sentences, paragraphs, and pages. I used to like to remind my graduate student that, that inspiration, Literally means breathing into it—a kind of CPR from the news, uh, which we all need before we can get some work done. Of late, however, step four has consisted of staring vainly pen in hand at blank ruled pages or exchanging fountain pen for note-taking ballpoint. Never take notes at the same time that you write prose sentences with, a creative writing sentences with. Uh, and perusing for possible suggestions in my spiral brown work notebook number five, 2008 hyphen 2008 blank, or my little black 6 ring loose-leaf personal notebook diary to no avail. That latter, the diary, has only a few blank leaves remaining and no room for more, and the workroom's bookshelves reserved for one copy of each edition and translation of every book, magazine article, and anthology contribution that I've ever perpetrated are already crowded beyond their capacity with new editions lying horizontally across older ones and jammed into crannies between bookcase and wall. That almost exhausted notebook space, those overflowing shelves, are they trying to tell me something? I plug my ears, strain not to listen. Like most fiction writers of my acquaintance, perhaps especially those who mainly write novels rather than short stories, I'm accustomed to a well-filling interval of some weeks or even months between book-length projects, an interval not to be confused with writer's block. Indeed, I've learned to look forward to that bit of respite from sentence-making after a new book has left the shop. Bulky typescript both snail-mailed Nowadays, and emailed to agent and thence to publisher, and to busy making notes toward the next one of final copy editing and galley proofing its predecessor. This time, however, dot dot dot. Well, well, a writer friend of mine from Kansas who knows about water wells informs me of the important distinction between dry wells and girdlers which may cease producing for a time, but eventually resume. He encourages me to believe that I am, if no longer a geyser, still a girdler, and yet a mere a May that prove to be the case, but if in fact the well is dry, I remind myself that as we've aged, my wife and I have been obliged to put other much enjoyed pleasures behind us, snow skiing, water skiing, tennis, sailboat cruising on the Chesapeake, and yes, even vigorous, youthful sex, but certainly not love and intimacy, and as someone once wise and reserved, some New Yorkers, I remember, sex goes, memory goes, but the memory of sex, that never goes. (laughs) If my vocation, my calling, turns out to have joined that sigh and smile list of once upon a times, its memory will be a cherished one indeed. Time will tell. Meanwhile, Maybe write a little piece about not writing? Thank you.
2: Okay, let's take a vote. Who thinks that was it? We'll never hear from John Barth again. (laughs) Well, it's um, it's really an honor to have you with us uh, tonight, Mr. Barth. And I have some questions here to uh, to get this Gervil going. Um, so, was that the end? What's your opinion?
1: Well, uh, it's important to remember that there is a question mark after it, and I have that subtitle on it uh, leaving the door ajar and not closed. Uh, I've been uh, making notes toward making notes. Let me put it that way, and looking at. Uh, and notebook notes that I've made from years past, sometimes decades past, to see whether over the passage of time they might suggest something to me now uh, that they didn't at the time. Uh, So far they haven't, and yet, uh, please understand, I'm not not closing the door. I'm not talking despair. Uh, At my age, one either has run out of patience or one learns to be very patient. And uh, in that department, at least, I've learned to be very patient. I still enjoy, I can't imagine otherwise, I still enjoy, as I think I just mentioned, uh, going to that desk, those motions, even the physical motions, as some of you may know from your own professions and vocations, the physical motions of going to that, the workplace, going through the preparatory rituals and so forth, themselves are a pleasure. And I find, and I still you know, will not leave that place until 11.30, quarter of 12 lunchtime, which is when I always used to quit anyhow. Uh, that's still such a pleasure, even if nothing comes from it. So, you know, I make little notes about things. I've, I've written a few Zen koans. <laughs> you, uh, I don't think any Zen master would recognize them as a legitimate koan. Uh, and, you know, other little notes toward notes toward notes and so forth. Uh, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But. Uh, but, of course, my hope is that uh, that the muse will, is that the bitch will come out of hibernation. And, uh, <laughs> that, that that sweet lady will, will once again, uh, see fit to, uh, to breathe into my spirit what it takes to write new fiction. The mere physical act, uh, as I mentioned before, what Tyler used to call the muscular cursive of uh, of writing with pen on paper. Of course, I depend on the word processor for all substantive graphs and editing. It's a wonderful invention for that. Uh, but that flow of, uh, of ink on paper, I miss so much that sometimes I will just take my pen and write ink on paper <laughs> or anything. You know, your pen, you're still working on something
2: just to keep it going. Um, if the uh, fiction, fictive muse, um, remains coy, would you take consolation in writing nonfiction?
1: Uh, well, as I've told you, my habit for, for decades has been fiction of Monday through Thursdays and nonfiction on Fridays. Uh, the end, that essay that I just read, was a Friday product. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've been making notes towards some further essays since. Uh, and and I'm pleased, I'll be pleased to see that, that new collection, Final Fridays of a question mark. Uh, come out later this month. Uh, oh sure, I'd be content to be, uh, you know, I'd much rather be writing, as I, I'm so used to doing, fiction most of the time, and non-fiction as a kind of respite and the change of uh, media, or genre, I should say, um, for certain.
2: When I spoke to you on the phone, and we were on this subject, you said something about, um, that, that,
1: that led me to infer that you consider that your work is the work of constructing sentences. I always think of it that way, of constructing sentences, those units, uh, those units of which all prose is made, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, uh, and that business of starting a sentence, coming to a period, actually putting the period down, which is much more fun with a pen than it is, hitting a key on a typewriter, and then going to the next one, uh, and the flow of, of the next words and so forth uh, is certainly a, a delight. I should mention that uh, before I decided that my vocation, Muse helped me, uh, is in the writing of fiction, my ambition all through high school years, I had I played jazz in a, in a jazz band, jazz combo, to help make extra money when I was in high school, and then when I went to college, to help pay my way through college. I played in better and better jazz groups as I got to be a little So I was a drummer and what in those days was called an arranger, an orchestrator. In other words, uh, I'd gone up to Juilliard after high school uh, in hopes that that's what I could do and found in Juilliard in two weeks in their summer program what I've seen some of my my writing students realize <laughs> halfway through semester. That, well, the person over here and the person over here might be going to be the musicians of their generation. I had to look for something else to do. Many. <laughs> you know, that what I had hoped was a pre-professional vocation with a manager flair, um, and it's good to recognize that. And particularly if you can find something else that turns out to be your vocation. But when I but with with uh, playing music and arranging music, which I also took very seriously, I loved doing it. But when I found out that that was had come to a stop. You know, I continued to play jazz right through a, a number of my professorial years, first to help implement my lower rank income, and then just for the pleasure of, of playing at each other's houses. Uh, but a time came when uh, when that too, I found that my reflexes were getting slower. You know, to play drummers particularly, you need fairly fast reflexes. And I, I realized I wasn't doing it as well as, as I liked. Uh, so I had to set it aside, and as I mentioned as one has to set other things aside that you've enjoyed and you actually have nothing good at. Now, uh, writing is a different story because uh, I remind myself, and I have probably said more than once, that uh, Oedipus, uh, Sophocles was supposed to have written Oedipus at Columbus, the last of his theme and trilogy, at age 90. Uh, you know, I'm only 80, 80 <laughs> I'm hoping there may be another story or two, maybe even another book in the works, time will tell.
2: Well, tell us a little bit about uh, the influence of um, Borges and uh, oh, yes. Machado. you
1: mentioned that yeah. there was a remarkable influence, and like a lot of other things that have been important to me as a writer and as a, as a human being, They were tips from two students of mine who were smarter than I was, who had had already read Borges before I discovered Borges, and already read Joaquin Machado de Assis before I discovered him. When uh, uh, Machado de Assis in particular was important to me, because believe it or not, even as a young professor, I had not yet managed to read Lawrence Stearns' Tristram Shandy. And when I read uh, Machado, uh, and then somebody told me, you know, a lot of stuff he learned from from Stern's Tristram Shandy as I went and read Tristram Shandy after the fact and saw that yes, that was true. Uh, And uh, that kind of of, uh, wonderful ad libitum stuff with space on the page Mm -hmm. and so forth. And still making it a readable book, an entertaining book that talks seriously about about serious human passions and the experience of life, but does it in that sportive fashion that Lawrence Stern does in *Tristram Shandy*, and then, for that matter, the Rabelais does in *Gargantua* and *Pantagruel*, uh, or uh, uh, Diderot and Jacques-Francois. Uh, those were revelations to me at the time, and certainly helped. Uh, they, they both helped explain some things that I found i already been doing and showed me ways in which to uh, remember that my ambition as a musician uh, was not so much to be a performer uh, on the drums, which I loved, uh, as to be an arranger, an orchestrator. And I still like, as a writer, sometimes to take a received idea like an old myth, let's say, or uh, the figure of Scheherazade, and then reorchestrate it to some Present purpose that seems to be as a legitimate thing for a writer to do as to start from. I mean, there's almost no scratch you can start from when literature's been going on for how many millennia now, uh, and we can't read at
2: all. How does it feel to have outlived uh, most of your contemporaries?
1: Uh, <laughs> well. Uh, Someone of them are certainly more worthy of staying alive and writing things, no doubt, than I am. But uh, I would rather be perpendicular and taking nourishment, as we say in Florida. Uh, Florida, but I was just reading a novel by a wonderful novel by uh, Shalom Auslander. Do you know this novel of his called, uh, what's it called? I've forgotten its title. Um, Hope, oh, a tragedy, it's called by Auslander, in which he, it's a Jewish, a very Jewish novel. We speaks of Florida, the place where Jews go to die.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: black humor, <Hebrew>, <laughs> if
2: Were you conscious of how important your work was when you were doing it in the 60s and
1: 70s? Oh, heavens no. When you're you're writing these things, you hope you'll find a goddamn publisher. (laughs) Uh, And and of course, it's important to you as a writer because you've done it. It's the best you've given it your best shot. You hope that other people will find it at least readable and uh, perhaps even entertaining, not to say uh, perhaps even moving enough to mention to somebody else, maybe you ought to read this book and so forth. That's all. I mean, the ambitions of people who feel that they have a calling are limitless, but that doesn't mean that their expectations are far limitless. You know, I was, the, the, my first novel, The Floating Opera, with my agent, whom I'd inherited from somebody else, uh, was patient enough to say, I forget how many publishers, I'm going to say 25, but I don't know for sure, before I finally found a home with uh, the now-defunct Appleton Century Crofts. Uh, and I keep, I keep telling my, I used to keep telling my graduate student writers who were very good, uh, very good, you know, we picked them for the, I used to tell them, we picked you for your talent in the first place, unlike the undergraduates who were allowed to sign up for the, we picked the graduate students for their talent, and I used to tell them, because of that, you were about this far from publication, but you will find this last two millimeters <laughs> to, be, to be the hardest gap to close, and perhaps impossible. There are people who never do manage to close that last gap, even though we think they're, they're just about there, just about there. But just about there isn't necessarily there. And it requires a lot of, I think, a certain amount of good luck, as well as other things.
2: Are you able to think now that we, uh, that we know, as a critic, I can say this. Um, that um, you were, you carried forward the torch of literature, just like Shakespeare, Byron, Joyce, Camus, and Faulkner, for a while. <laughs> Are you able to accept that, or is that just too, too abstract?
1: <laughs> that seems that seems uh, a little, uh, a bit of an overstatement. to me. <laughs> um, I managed to write some books that, that some critics and some readers have enjoyed. Uh, and that some other younger writers have told me were important to them. And if that's passing on the torch, uh, that's good enough for me. Uh, and, and, and particularly given the, uh, the difficult straits that uh, <coughs> literature in general and, and the novel in particular have been in for some time now, it's a great pleasure to me that as many of the books as are are still in print. Uh, I mean, the fact that they're still out there, or at least available in some form or another, is sufficient, uh, I mean, immortality for me means hoping that some of my books are still in print as long as I am. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: and, and maybe, you know. Yes, so uh, many people think that uh, if you lecture about the literature, that you're very much into your own head and it's difficult to engage in the fully in the creative process? You were a professor at Penn State and Boston University. Was there ever a time where you felt that there was a conflict between the two activities? And if so, never. how did you deal with it? No, never.
1: No, never. Uh, in fact, on the contrary, it seemed to me that talking about uh, having to prepare lectures and, and talk to students about books that have been very important to you, having to study those books carefully enough, in fact, even studying the work of talented uh, graduate student writers, Enough to to critique it properly and steer the criticism in the in the seminar uh, was a useful exercise in keeping my own tools sharpened, And uh, no, I never felt that other thing. I could understand that some people might. I mean, writers are as different from others as painters and sculptors and composers and so forth. And what's uh, you know what was good for you know what Chekhov had to have. Uh, rotting apples in his desk or something like that. Uh, another one has to, I think Catherine Ann Porter, somebody had to have a blank wall in front of her, her thing. You know, all writers have, you know, what, what works for Kafka is not necessarily going to work for Hemingway, for instance. Uh, so I don't think you should take too seriously, well, you might listen to it, but don't take too seriously when anybody says, this is what you should do, this is what you should do. I mean, obviously, you've got to find out, because said you have to find out what your voice is, compared to other voices in the, in the millennia of literature that uh, have gone before. Have I told you this already? I told because I think I remember mentioning it to Lord Chauncey or to John earlier, when Donald Bartholomew at my invitation visited my, my class, I think it was at uh, Buffalo before I came down to Johns Hopkins. He came in and with this, this look of his, it reminded me of an Amish farmer from West 11th Street in Greenwich Village. He came and he said to my students, so what's bothering you? and uh, one of the young women in the class said, with false innocence, how can we become better writers than we are? And (laughs) Donald said, well, you might start by reading all of the history, all of philosophy from the pre-Socratics up to last semester, that might help. (laughs) And the young woman in the class said, but Professor Barr said we should read all of the literature from the Middle Kingdom up to last. And I said, That too, that too. <laughs> You're wasting your time doing things like eating and sleeping. He said, Forget that and go read everything. Read everything. When Umberto Eco, the wonderful Italian critic and novelist, uh, visited my seminar, he said, uh, You must read everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said to Eco, You know, literature is. Three thousand written literature is now getting on to three thousand years old, and the oral tradition, which has been very important to me as a writer, is is mill- untold millennia antedating the invention of writing. Everything <laughs> as, much as, you can. <laughs> as much as you can. One of the most important uh, growth experiences for me as a writer was a job I took at Johns Hopkins to help defray my tuition. You didn't get paid, but it helped, they took it off your tuition of being a book filer in the stacks of the uh, of the then Gilman Hall Library. My stacks happened to include the classic stacks and the stacks of what in those pre-political correctness days was called the Oriental Seminary. That's a term we never do nowadays, but it was where a Chinese, Indian, and Sanskrit literature was. And you were given a cart full of books told you would put them on the shelf and come back when the cart was empty. You weren't told, hurry up. Uh, so naturally, you would tend to look through some of the things that you were shelving. And since my stacks included that, and wonderful, they included the, uh, all those, those, ta- those wonderful oriental, oriental, all those wonderful Indian and uh, other uh, tale cycles, like the Vetala Panchahim Saka, 25 Tales Told by a Vampire. For the and the Panchatantra, and one called uh, the Great Tale, which uh, which the god Shiva tells to his mistress Parvati, while she sits on his lap as a reward for an especially good session of love making. And the tale takes so long to tell. It's about five times longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. <laughs> she sits patiently on his lap until it's done. That's the oral tradition at its finest. And the version that I borrowed from the stacks of the library, Penzer's edition of, uh, of the Katha Siret Sagara, The Ocean of Streams of Story, which are tales within tales within tales. I used to do a count. I was so in... I fell so in love Partly because of Scheherazade, who has been one of my icons from back in those days. Scheherazade seems to me to be the image of every writer's situation. Excuse the, the uh, gross pun, but like every writer, she's, you know Scheherazade, the king, has, was cuckolded by his wife and he killed first his brother was scooped over by his wife and killed a thousand women and he married a new woman and killed her the next morning before she gave him king shayar visits him learns about this and says my ally if my wife ever did that to me i would kill a thousand women in revenge he comes home finds out that that's been the case and then he commands his visitor bring him a virgin every night to deflower and then he'll kill her the next morning to me, and Scheherazade, who's the vizier's daughter, volunteers herself for this job because so many families have been fleeing the country with their daughters that there's not going to be any more virgins to produce. So the virgin, the only one left, is the virgin's own daughter, which he won't do, but she's volunteered herself because she's got an idea and she tells the kind of story. You know, there, there is the sex with Dunyazade, the kid's sister, at the foot of the bed to witness it. Uh, There is the the defloration, and then the post sleep, and then the king, and then it's it's Denizade, who's been prompted, she's the important one, says, maybe you could tell us a story. And the king says, by Allah, I won't kill her until I've heard this story. So she tells a story. She she times it to be interrupted at the crack of dawn, uh, in the middle of, you know, just when it's getting good, and the king says, by Allah, I will kill until I've heard the rest of her. That seems to me, and since the first time I read The Thousand and One Nights, uh, to be the image of every story is telling a situation. Uh, you're only as good as your next piece, excuse the pun. Uh, and your life is always on the line, you know, you're only as good as your next story. And uh, Allah willing, uh, <laughs> there will be one. Uh, maybe particularly if there's a little sex and sleep beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Next question. <laughs> yeah. um, You're only as good as your next question. <laughs> <laughs> just to go back on the, we, we were talking about reading. Um, what are your thoughts on like the future of, of reading? Like, we always ask, what's the future of writing? Or giving the readings. The future, of, in the sense, I'm sorry, just to give a oh, context. reading, no, reading. Yeah, reading. I'm not reading because with uh-huh. the, the generation we live in now, with phones and Twitter and Facebook, everything is short. You know, know, short bursts, just kind of like fast. Yeah, uh, one you know, when, when hears
1: the doomsaying and the and the apocalyptic prophecies. They may come true, but I'm reminded that, that that people were saying that when movies were invented, they were saying certainly when television was invented, mean, that's the end of books. You know, when television was invented, that's the end of reading, and so forth. Uh, there's something about books. The audience may get smaller and smaller. I don't know. It may also be that like uh, that, that some of us. So we enjoy going to the movies, we enjoy watching television, we enjoy work doing stuff on the internet and so forth. But there's still, you know, it's like just because one kind of food is good doesn't mean another kind of food is not good. Uh, and and I, I, I hope that there will still be enough people who, like myself, enjoy those other media, but still like the feel. I don't even, now, one thing I don't like, for example, or I haven't learned to like, are e books, just because I don't, I understand why they could be very useful to people. But I love the feel of a thing in here, it's from the old codex construction, the feel of a book in the hand. If you can turn, you can pause, you can refer, you can put a bookmark in here. You can do that electronically with some of those other things. But it's just the feel, even the smell, uh, it's the tactile sensation of books as, as much as the, not as much, but in addition to the experience of reading itself. I thought you were talking about giving readings. And I don't enjoy doing that. Uh, I've given enough of them now, so they don't really enjoy it as much as I used to. Uh, but partly, I think that's from my other early ambition to be a musician. That uh, I used to like performing. I was a drummer as well as a arranger in jazz bands and dance bands. And that the contrast between writing, which is a solitary dialogue between yourself and readers of the future, you hope, but between yourself and the page and the more collective give-and-take enterprise of music or of giving a reading, a public reading, where you have a live audience instead of just a living audience. Uh, I, Partly because of my years as a teacher, partly because of my years as a musician, I enjoyed both of those.
2: Um, you mentioned um, in, in the reading that you gave us earlier, you mentioned Dickens. Whose birthday, incidentally, is today, I think. Um, And uh, so, and it reminded me that he was the first novelist who I ever got into as a kid. I was probably eight or nine years old and I got seriously immersed in Charles Dickens and his whole world. But um, I wonder at that age, what what were you reading?
1: Uh, I picked up this book. By this person called William Faulkner. Uh, it was one of, oh, him! It was very. It was poor Faulkner. It was it was the pylon or something like that. You know, one of the early Faulkners, not one of the famous ones. But that and uh, Manhattan Transfer, John Dos, Hass, John Dos Passos, and Manhattan Transfer, and the stuff that Dos Passos was doing on the page, these strange things of putting newspaper headlines up top and you know, and Faulkner. And really, the one I got, the the Faulkner I really came to love, the Faulkner of Sanctuary, Faulkner had his most incantatory. uh, uh, This was, I I didn't realize at the time I was being exposed to modernist, you know, modern literature in its American version, Uh, but something was speaking to me there, and I would say that, uh, that that those early experiences of Faulkner and John Dos Passos hooked me into not only literature, but but modern literature. And then, of course, uh, we had, on Eastern Shore, around an 11-year public school system. It was such a poor county, didn't have a 12th grade. And uh, nobody went off to college from there. Almost nobody did. But uh, I managed to win a a senatorial scholarship to Hopkins for one year. The senator liked to rotate it so that he could oblige more of his constituencies. But I managed to hang on in that first year that uh, none of us was prepared to go to college coming out of that public school system. But I met some, some good classmates from who had been good to good private schools and already heard about the Renaissance and the Reformation. And they knew, we, I was still looking for the men's room and, <laughs> and how do you get around the campus and all that, what's this Johns Hopkins thing? But I found enough good friends there and good musicians to help play jazz with, uh, to help me through that first year. and excuse this long story, but fell into the happy uh, company of a, of a, a very good-natured a Marine veteran who was teaching an introductory fiction writing course. He was, a, he was finishing his own doctorate on William Faulkner, and he was the first doctoral dissertation ever written on Faulkner, actually. Uh, and he introduced us to uh, Faulkner, and then by extension to Hemingway and to, and to America, that generation of America, Beatrix Stein and the rest of... Uh, and I was hooked.
2: Anyone? Yeah. Uh, somewhat related question. In your time in the Eastern Shore, did you have contact with Dashiell Hammett or any of his relatives who were from the Eastern Shore?
1: No, I knew that Hammett had lived there, and. Uh, just as I know that in Chestertown on the Eastern Shore, where my wife and I live now in the summertime, uh, the uh, Sophie Kerr, that novelist, had lived there for a time, and I would never read her, but I went and read her for that reason. Uh, who else? James M. Kane or somebody lived on the Eastern Shore for a while. A number of writers have lived there. Of course, James Mitchell came and lived there later on just while he was writing Chesapeake. Uh, Mitchell used to go live in a place while he was writing about it and go on to the next place. Uh, And As I mentioned, I knew from from growing up there that there was this place called Cook's Point at the end of the Chalkine River, where I didn't realize who it was named after until much later when I discovered Ebenezer Cook, the author of The Sotny Factory. Yes?
2: Back in the 60s and early 70s, I used to think of you and Robert Cooper and Thomas Pynchon kind of together in that sort of exuberant uh, fabulation and um, also dealing with big existential questions and the meaning of life and things like that. And I guess at the time, I was thinking, well, that's the future of literature. And then it sort of all ended in the late 70s. Do you have any sense of, or am I wrong about that? Maybe. (laughs) But I mean, something changed. Yeah, but
1: some of those writers uh, didn't survive as long as some of the rest of us did. They're, that doesn't mean that their works that are not. And as I think I mentioned earlier in our in this conversation, we used to cross paths every now and then, and uh, and and sort of shake hands. with the critics and people have been lumping us together as this or that, fabulous postmodernist mm-hmm. what have you. Uh, but that we were usually more impressed by the differences between ourselves and what we were doing than by the similarities. But but we certainly had a cordial respect for one another. Uh, now your question was, is that dead? Well, something some of that, around some, the, of, those, some mean, of those people are, but the books are. That whole kind of literature I
2: mean, you mentioned it in your introduction, that that's, that sort of fabulation. The, I mean, it seems like. It was kind of mainstream, and then it quit being mainstream. Yeah, which
1: doesn't mean that nobody's doing that sort of thing anymore. Uh, and um, I remember William Gass, uh, Bill Gas, who's passed across every now and then, you know, here or there and so forth, he wrote somewhere that uh, We're only South Americans are the ones who are writing the novels nowadays. We're only renting it from South America. (laughs) Well, okay, who cares who we rent it from? You know, South America, uh, medieval Europe, uh, the ancient Greeks. uh, It doesn't matter. You know, whatever, whatever floats your boat, whatever speaks to you, whatever wakes up your muse. And uh, God knows that. uh, I mean, Zeus knows, the muses know, but. uh, that inspiration comes from, from any odd mix of, of things, from something your wife told you last night to something you read, something that was written 3,000 years ago that you read. I remember reading and, and excitedly reporting to my graduate students when I was reading a book about the literature of the of the Egyptian Middle Kingdom that described Kakaparasan. He wrote what I began, what I came to call Kakap Kaka Parasim's complaint. This was about 3000 BC. And his, his, he was saying in effect, where will I find words that the poets of old, words that have not been used before, that the poets of old have not already made stale. You know, literature begins with the complaint that it's exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's a mood that anybody is likely to feel who had any acquaintance with his or her predecessors. Combined with any respect for his or her predecessors, you like to feel, my God, look what Rabelais did, you know, good heavens, you know, look what Sophocles did, uh, look what uh, all these wonderful people did. What in the world can I say? And you can comfort yourself, I you used to tell my students, we well, say, remember that you're living now when lots of things are going on that are the same as we're going on then, but lots of things are going on that are different than what they're going on. And anyway, you living now, or a completely different sensibility, or a rather different sensibility in a rather different environment from them living then. And anyway, remember, I was an arranger, not a composer. So you can take an old tune and play it in a new key or on a new instrument, and come out with something eminently worth listening to.
2: Can you talk a little bit about uh, the writing seminar that you taught so successfully in, and, and some of the more memorable students that you've had?
1: Yes, uh, at my age, I'm, I'm permitted not to remember their names as well as I could have 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, I used to tell them. Let me let me answer your question this way. I used to tell them at the end that uh, I wish you success. You know, may the muse be with you. Uh, Never, under any circumstances, send me another unpublished manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up to here with unpublished manuscripts, including yours. Yeah. But do please send me uh, your publications so that I can see, not, not take credit for them, but see that I didn't do any irreparable damage <laughs> to, to what you would have probably done anyway. Uh, but I will modestly take a tiny bit of credit for what, the, for what you would no doubt have managed to do without me. And they do that. And I'm pleased that uh, the that writer's as different as uh, Louise Erdrich and, uh, oh God, forgive me, Muse, forgive me for not remembering more of their names than I do. Uh, but there have been quite a number who uh, have published, they send me their books, and I have a shelf of, of books published by my former students, uh, which I'm pleased to, to see a rather large. Along
2: children. those lines, what will happen now uh, that writers have such easy access to publication in the sense of being able to self-publish. Oh, to self-publish. Where they never had such easy access in the past. Do you think there'll be something lost that there won't be the editing process the way there was back in the day?
1: I've no idea. I think probably you'll see both things. Uh, uh, I mean, the fact is that having self-published or whatever, the books will either Survive. You know, either somebody will like it enough to pass it on to somebody else, and so forth. I just know
2: what will happen to your library. You're going to get all these self-published books. <laughs> <laughs> we'll resist them as long as
1: <laughs> I used to tell my students that I don't write blurbs, but uh, but if you, uh, I'm willing to give you a blurb for 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 your first novel if I really like it, your first book if I really like it. And then you're allowed to recycle that bird and, <laughs> <laughs> sort of books. and There have been a number. <laughs> uh, the medium is, you know, it's always under threat. Uh, it always seems to be going to die, going to die, going to die. It's something that always seems to speak along. You know, I, I don't think books are about to disappear anytime soon. It's just too pleasant, whatever else you're doing, to, to sit with a book in your hand
2: and turn the pages. Well, Russ Hills, who was the uh, fiction editor at Esquire for many years. He told me once that uh, the, the idea that there was once a golden age of American literature where the average working man went home and sat down and read uh, Hemingway or Fitzgerald in the Saturday Evening Post is a complete fiction. It's a myth. They would go home and read the Saturday Evening Post, which had episodic stories that translated exactly into TV shows. <laughs> so and the point was that serious literature has always been a hard sell. Just as this. Yes, sir. Last question. Last question. I just finished a, a biography of Balzac, and in it, they, they showed that he and he frustrated all the editors because he would do twenty and thirty drafts. Uh, how many drafts uh, do you, you know, How many iterations of your drafts do you go through, or have you gone through? Yeah, it
1: depends on it depends on the particular project. Uh, Essays and short stories go through more drafts than novels until, I generally, as I've told you, as I mentioned before. I like to write the day's pages in longhand, put them on the computer, uh, and then uh, that will get turned into an edited typescript, which I'll read a couple of times and edit and send off to my agent and, uh, and my editor. And uh, if it's a good editor, uh, he or she will make some suggestions. Well, first I'll show it to my wife, who's, who's a really good editor, and she remembers what cards are played here and what books oh, need to be picked up here and so forth. And uh, and then you know I'll read it again when it comes out in in the, you know after the if I've had a good editor I'll, I'll see what he or she has to say and then perhaps make some changes there. Uh, then when I see the, the first galley proofs, it's interesting to see it in print for the first time. Uh, and often we'll make some changes there. Things look so official in print that sometimes that occurs thing occurs to me then. Yeah. I remember when uh, word processing was brand new and Leonard Michaels, the, the, the novice of Michael's visiting my seminar at Hopkins uh, while I was on leave for a semester and students were bringing in these things. Well, you're, you're, you're word process managers He says, this is terrible, guy. He says, they're going to think it's finished I and mean, it only looks that way. Uh, I understand that. You know, It used to be it didn't look finished until you saw it. In, uh, in Thank you for your patience and for asking it.
0: Thank you, John Barth, Chauncey Mabe, and Books and Books. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you for listening.